1: Especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the gripping imprint of boot on the pages of history.
0: I'm ryan gable your host and you are listening to the secret teachings radio broadcast right here on the fringe fm if you'd like to contact the show during or after the email is rdgable at yahoo.com that's r d g a b l e at yahoo.com you can find us on social media at facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings reach us through my personal account ryan gable or The Fringe FM on Facebook, as well as visiting our website, which is packed with our growing show archive over an entire full decade. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Ten years of great shows with great guests and timeless subjects at www.thesecretteachings.info. You'll also find my books on the website, my book, Occult Arcana, The Technological Elixir, and Food Philosophy, which I've spent quite a bit of time recently revising and rewriting for an updated and expanded edition that will be available very soon. And one of the things that prompted me to do that was the reading of a handful of other books, one in particular, called What Really Makes You Ill, one of the most comprehensive books on health and disease that I've personally ever read, uh, read. And, uh, Tonight, we're going to talk about What Really Makes You Ill, which is not just the name of the show. It's the name of this massive book, 700 or so pages. And this book's really interesting because it was sent to me by the authors Don Lester and David Parker a couple of months ago. And I got a copy of it in the mail. They asked me if I wanted a copy, and I said, sure. So I took a copy of this, I sat it aside. I have a huge pile of books. And I was reading a, a number of history books at the time, and I just had this sitting there on my shelf. It was in the queue, ready to go. And then I get a call one day from my good friend and co-host, Jack, who's been on the show many times. He has a website called messengerof.info, messenger of Information. And Jack said, have you ever heard of Don Lester and David Parker? And I said, yeah, they sent me their book, and Jack told me he had just ordered a copy of the book and a couple of minutes later in the conversation he said he asked them to be on the show. So in an an in intuitive and synchronistic kind of a fashion, we set up tonight's broadcast and we're going to talk with the authors of this book. It's over seven hundred pages, like I said. It's one of the most comprehensive books on health and diet that I've ever read, which I maintain as part of a collective change that so many people desire. Collective change stems from individual responsibility of lifestyle choices. I talk about quite often on the show how whether or not you trust the Centers for Disease Control or you trust any other health-oriented agency or doctors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whether you trust authorities, it's it's pretty well known, and whether or not it's an estimate or something that's a definitive fact. Most disease is preventable, especially diseases like obesity or diabetes and many forms of cancer. When I bring up the CDC, I bring it up because the CDC estimates consistently that about 40% of the five leading causes of death in the United States are totally preventable. And that also doesn't include the fact that not just death, but the millions of people that suffer from preventable and very, very curable, not just treatable diseases they estimate, they say that one of the major ways that we can curtail this is through proper lifestyle. Stop drinking so much, stop smoking so much, have a better diet, exercise a little bit. And there's even insinuations, of course, maybe not so much on a governmental level, but on a personal level, if you're able to reduce stress and you drink enough water that's clean and you get enough sleep and enough sunlight, these are things that override the medical system. So without further ado... I'd like to bring on my co-host Jack. Jack, are you with us?
2: I'm here, Ryan. All right. Hello.
0: Hello Jack. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, thanks. You're I'm doing not well. wearing my mask and I haven't washed my hands right before the broadcast.
0: I did wash so. my hands, but I do, I do not have a mask. And I'm glad that you're well. <laughs> I'm glad that you're well. You are not ill. But I think I, am not Ill. I think we can ask the question to Don LeSter and David Parker, author of What Really Makes You Ill. Why is it as the book title? suggests that everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong don and david welcome to the show
3: thank you very much for having us and uh, we're really looking forward to uh, talking to you about these things uh, and as you say it's uh, quite a fortuitous time uh, with what's happening in the world um it's uh, we didn't plan the book uh, <laughs> to be here at this time so uh, i believe there's a purpose in all these things i mean we've wrote the book over a period of 10 years, took a lot of research to be sure of our facts, and that's why there's 40 pages of references in the book. Um, and uh, we sort of published it uh, just at the tail end of last year, around Christmas time, and before all this uh, pandemonium, shall we say, uh, hit the world. So we're quite fortuitous, and I think really important that uh, people can really find out about what really makes the ill, and uh, in particular, to free themselves from the fear that's been generated about some uh, supposed virus that's been uh, traveling around the world, um, killing thousands of people. Which, of course, as we will point out during our discussions, uh, that is absolutely unfounded. There is no scientific uh, proof of that whatsoever, but we can talk about that as we go on. Um, so, yes, it's quite a, a bold Statement Why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong, um, but we stand by that because everyone, and that included us before we started on this journey of writing and researching, um, we were told and brought up to believe that uh, germs of one form or another, whether it was bacteria or viruses, were the root cause of most diseases. Um, and we believe that. Uh, we would believe that, uh, yes, the medical establishment knew what they were talking about. And they'd got various medicines, uh, lotions and potions, as I often put it, that they could give us if we did get ill. Um, And vaccinations, which they could give us to prevent us from catching some of these diseases. And all of these things were investigated and found no substance, no scientific proof for any of those things, which was a great shock to us. Uh, But the more we looked, the more we had to dig deeper. So when we started the book, we thought, well, what's the most basic thing that you can ask? What is the most basic thing that we can ask? And so we thought, yeah, well, what really makes you ill? So that's how we set out to research it, Um, taking nothing for granted. uh, Didn't matter what any of the sort of official literature said, what any of officialdom said, we thought we want to see the evidence. And so that's why it took 10 years to track down what evidence there was that existed to back up what the medical establishment was saying. You know, we didn't set out to destroy the medical establishment or to belittle doctors and to make them out to be evil people. You know, we realised they were only doing what they'd been taught. Uh, So in the book, we show how we investigated the training of doctors, how the medical establishment uh, trains doctors and who's behind that. And we've talked to doctors about their training, So uh, all of which is detailed in the book and it soon became clear that um, they were taught a particular regime in their training. They were taught, um, well, this particular virus causes this particular disease or this particular bacteria causes that particular disease. Um, But they were never given any actual evidence and doctors have admitted this to us, uh, some privately, some more open. Um, they were never taught. Uh, well, where's the evidence to back this up? You're telling us this. And this is what we have to learn to be able to pass our exams. <clears throat> but where's the evidence? They never asked that or were given it. And of course, once they became qualified, they never had the time to either. So it's um, we found it was all built on dogma and assumptions and nothing to do with scientific proof. Yeah, I feel
0: feel that the dogma and the assumptions are first and foremost, and then in terms of exposing beyond the dogma and the assumptions, what the medical establishment really does, which seems to be an opposite of what it purports to do, especially considering that modern medicine is the leading cause of death in the United States and much of the rest of the world, that then the financial element becomes apparent. So it's dogma, it's belief, and it's assumption, and then finances come in and play a secondary role because even if doctors, nurses, and others in the establishment decide, they read your book for example, and they decide based on the evidence that what they've been taught is incorrect, well it takes a lot to not only alter your perspective and perception of reality, but it takes a lot to change the lifestyle that you're living, performing that job, whatever it might be. So dogma, and then finances, there are a lot of things that are involved in this is what I'm suggesting. It's not simply like some people say, it's just about money, or it's just about this or that. It's a complex system, but when you examine it, it seems to be very easy to understand. It's really simple to comprehend when you see the details or, in the cases of what you've documented, the lack thereof in terms of proof for many of the things that all of us tend to collectively believe.
3: Yes, all all of that's true, and uh, because of, uh, if you think about it, just in the Uh, circumstances that the world finds itself in at the moment with this, uh, uh, well, I say the words with this fictitious virus that's supposed to be uh, making everyone sick. Um, It it is a complete fallacy, but it's given immense power to uh, the people that pull the strings, if you like, around the world. Um, As I think most of your listeners will know, uh, the governments, the people that we see, whether it's our prime minister or senators they're they're not the people who make these sorts of decisions they're told what to do they work from a script uh the same with the media it's, it's quite a controlled mechanism which again can shock a lot of people when they first come to it but we found this to be true uh, and again we cover vested interests uh, in the book uh, as, as people progress through it so they can see why these things happen and how these things happen and how all the dots, dots join together Um, But it's given a powerful, very powerful, um, well, I'll call it a weapon because it has given the powers that be behind the scenes. It's given them a very powerful weapon that they'd, uh, with what they've done in the world, that they'd never have been able to do without the complicity of the medical establishment at certain levels and the complicity of the mainstream media uh, without those two factors. Um, and of course, with the puppet governments that we all have, without those factors, they would never have been able to do what they do. But of course, it does rely on individuals as well. And because they've been able to instill fear into in, into individuals around the world, and because those individuals believe what the authorities tell them, um, all of that comes together and puts us into this ridiculous situation that we're in now, which is very tragic, Uh, Is causing great harm and suffering all around the world. And um, will probably take a long time before we can, the world that is, can get over this. And it will require, it will require knowledge of the people en masse to be able to reject these um, fallacious arguments uh, that the governments are putting forward. You know, once they realise there's no science behind it, it will pull the rug out from not only the medical establishment, but also the governments who say that everything they do is based on science. Yeah, I, once, people, once people see there is no science there, then they'll stop believing in this uh, uh, mystical state that they're, that they're giving to governments and the medical establishment.
0: I always say that it's not science. It's not science, uh, science as a field of study, a field of observation. It's the scientist with the vested interest. It's, it's the evidence that's lacking. And I think words are very, very important in terms of analyzing this type of stuff because um, in terms of what a virus is, that was one of the things that fascinated me. One of the major things that I think I, I learned and comprehended in this book was about what a virus is. And I think it's interesting that so much of our, our perception, our perspectives, our faith in established doctrines is based on the fallacy of appealing to authority, except There are some authorities, there are some doctors, there are some nurses that come out and they make videos and they go on radio shows and they say things that are contrary to the establishment. And yet people that otherwise would appeal and do appeal to the authority of the medical establishment and doctors and others for information reject what these doctors who disagree with the establishment have to say. Therefore, kind of implying to me that it's not always the appeal to authority that matters. It's the appeal to a specific type of dogma that matters more than anything else. Because sometimes when a doctor speaks out, but doesn't say exactly what the status quo is, they are obviously rejected just as much as you, me, or anyone else who's not a doctor is rejected for suggesting and documenting, as you guys have, Don Lester, David Parker, in the book, What Really Makes You Ill. Now, when, when Don first emailed me, she said that my interest might be piqued by the section on viruses, going back to what a virus means. Don, could you speak to us a little bit about what a virus is?
4: Uh, Well, as you say, um, the meanings of words are really quite important, and uh, everyone's been made to believe that viruses are some kind of um, biological um, organism, a a microorganism that uh, has its own kind of um, ability to leave people's bodies and go and infect other people's bodies and give them diseases, um, you know, that it's definitely some kind of living thing. Um, so that was one of the big surprises for us when we discovered that, in fact, it's uh, recognised to be a non-living particle. It's actually a piece of genetic material in um, a protein coating, so it's it's not a living organism at all. So it hasn't the ability to... Um, decide that it was going to uh, to leave somebody's body through a sneeze and then enter somebody else's body and infect them and make them ill because it's some nasty living thing. So um, looking back at the origin of the word, uh, we discovered that it's from the Latin for poison, noxious substance. And in fact, that is far, well, that is actually far closer to um, as we found what really makes people ill um, poisons and noxious substances harmful substances and influences as well so it's not merely kind of chemicals or whatever but it's uh, um, well we'll probably get into other influences but certainly one of the things is um, uh, the stresses and fears and that's certainly being used at the moment to make people really scared and it's not only detrimental for the mind, but it can be detrimental for the body as well. And uh, But it, this has got nothing to do with any living particle because it just simply isn't. So uh, anybody thinking that they need to take some kind of antiviral, even if it's a natural antiviral, um, you say, well, the, the virus is not living and therefore there's nothing to kill. Um, simple as that, really.
0: Now, there's some debate even in the mainstream scientific community about that, though, in terms of if a virus is alive or a virus is dead. I mean, let's say that we classified a virus as alive. Would that affect the research that you guys have conducted, the conclusions you've come to?
3: Uh, no, not at all, because um, we've, um, well, again, cutting a long story short, there's there's three basic things that um, any true scientist should do to prove Uh, that virus in this case is a pathogen of some sort. Um, And that is that, uh, first of all, they would have to isolate the virus and uh, present an electromicrograph of the virus. They would then need to fully categorize it and uh, and, uh, display its full genetic makeup. And then they would have to prove that that virus is the sole cause of the particular disease attributed to it you know, you would think simply enough things, and they are, but that's never been done. Never, ever been done for any virus that uh, anyone would care care to mention. And of course, it's not been done for the particular one that, uh, I'm not sure whether we can mention it on your show, but the particular one that's been bandied around the world at the moment. Um, So this is where, again, where the science is lacking. So whether a This particle, which, as Dawn rightly says, is not actually a living particle, it's a piece of protein. But even if it was alive, you would still have to go through those three things. And it's never been done. And it became very obvious to us. I mean, we're not the only people that's looked for this information. Uh, Some real luminaries like uh, Carrie Mullis, who was the inventor of the PCR. um, He looked for the papers for the AIDS virus, the so-called AIDS virus. And... uh, you know, he was a true scientist. As I say, he got the Nobel Prize for his work, but he realized that those papers don't exist. And yet, uh, we all know the kerfuffle that was made over that, you know, when it first came out in the 80s, and it was going to sweep the world and millions were going to die. Um, It didn't matter whether you were homosexual or heterosexual, it would infect everyone. And it was a real doomsday scenario. Well, fortunately, none of that came to pass. And, uh, again we discuss that in detail in the book but the important thing was that Carrie Mullis a proper scientist looked for those original papers and they're not there and other scientists uh, such as you may have heard of uh, uh, Dr Stefan Lanker you know he was a virologist he doesn't like to be called a virologist anymore because he feels it's a a bankrupt science well not a science it's just a a bankrupt uh, piece of work He's still a doctor, of course, but it's only a few years ago that he made a a challenge to the medical establishment to prove that a virus was the cause of measles. And uh, it went through several court cases and eventually finished up in the High Court in Germany. And uh, all the big guns of the pharmaceutical company and the medical establishment uh, failed to prove that a virus caused measles, something that we'd always all taken for granted. So yet again... No papers there to prove it, and they couldn't prove it. So he won his case. Um, But the really strange thing is that even that was determined in the High Court in Germany. Um, You never saw hardly anything about it in the mainstream press, nothing at all, which sort of starts to tell you about the complicity of the mainstream press in suppressing vital information. But what even makes it even worse is that in March of this year, in spite of it being found uh, that the virus didn't cause measles in Germany in the High Court, the German government has mandated that all schoolchildren should be vaccinated against measles, which beggars belief, doesn't it? You know that in their own court it's been proved that it doesn't. There's no virus to cause measles, and yet they've you know, now making all their schoolchildren yeah. have vaccinations against measles. Which shows you that the authorities are not working from a scientific basis, in the same way that our government's not working yeah, from yeah. a scientific basis. And that's one of the things that's right. just. Go ahead, Jack.
2: I, I was just going to say I looked that up after I had heard uh, a couple of interviews from Don and David. Hey, Jack.
0: Jack, I, be, tr- I, I bet you the only thing that you can find is the is the article that they said that the guy had to had to pay the money, right?
2: Correct. And that was in 2015. So I emailed Dawn to ask her for clarification. That's what I presumed was the case. And certainly it was. And and he, and he Dr. Lanka did take it back to the Supreme Court in Germany, correct? And he yes. won the case. But one other thing, too, about uh, Kerry M- uh, Mullis, uh, he was the inventor of the PCR test that is being used to supposedly detect uh, this virus. And even he said I think it was in 1993, he said that this test is not uh, to be used to diagnose viruses.
3: Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he said it was never designed to do that. And what it would end up producing, because of the way it works, is lots of false positives. You know, because it, it was never designed to do that. But of course, and that's exactly what will happen as they start testing people, um, because that suits their purpose. They want to be able to show and say that uh, although all these people are testing positive for this fictitious virus, um, it suits their purpose. And we come across this a lot. uh, And that's why we keep saying that the whole thing is not based on true science. It's based on um, what suits the purposes of the people in authority.
4: But also they're not uh, the tests do not detect the virus Um, this is um, a lot of people think um, a test will show whether they've got the virus in their body but it doesn't it actually only detects for certain um, um, genetic material or or for antibodies and antibodies are merely proteins that are supposed to be uh, produced by the body when it's been attacked by a certain virus Um, but as we show uh, the the Viruses don't attack the body anyway. They're not foreign invaders. They are found within the body all the time. All these particles are. They're not viruses. Um, so there is no immune reaction to a foreign entity that is a virus. And so this, this whole idea of testing for uh, something that um, shows a reaction to um, an invader is, is completely wrong. It's completely wrong.
3: I mean, this this showed up very much with uh, going back to the HIV-AIDS uh, uh, fiasco where, again, as Dawn rightly said, they never in any of these tests actually det- detect the virus in someone's blood, which you would expect that they would, but they don't. They look for what they call markers and it's, it's just a protein. And with the HIV tests, which I think most people now know are very unreliable, Um, Again, they were looking for a protein and these particular proteins can be in your body for a variety of reasons. I think someone had counted up to 70 reasons where you would have this protein in your body, in your blood, which are nothing to do with any disease at all. And one of the reasons you'd have it if you were a woman and were pregnant, you'd have this very same protein in your blood. But it doesn't mean you've got HIV or any other disease. So again, it's it's just a very corrupt way of doing things to suit some other ul- ulterior motive.
0: Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like how astronomers describe how they can determine the composition environmentally of a planet light years away. They say, well, they kind of determine, based on images, if there's a gravitational effect on other bodies that they can observe. So then they just assume that must mean that there's a planet there, and then by the, 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 this, the variation of lights that they can detect, they say that the atmosphere of the composition must be XYZ. But they're not actually detecting a direct planet. It's very similar, I think, in the macrocosm mm-hmm. as in the microcosm.
3: Yes, yes correct. Again, as we said earlier, it's based on assumptions, not actual science. You know, um, it, it, and if I not, may, well, it's
4: based on. Sorry,
3: no, no, no. I, I just
0: wanted to. I just wanted to inject one thing into the conversation, and that is when you think of something like uh, ADHD or you know any of these so-called mental disorders that children have, all it is is if you looked at official government resources in the United States, they used to say, I think they still do, that running playing, climbing on things, and, and being attracted to shiny, colorful objects for children are classifications of a disease, meaning that they're taking normal behavior, normal human functional behavior, and classifying it as a disease to sell a drug or a treatment.
3: Correct, yes. And uh, we detail mental health, and uh, we quote quite a lot from uh, Dr. Peter Breggin, who's a well-known psychiatrist in America who's uh, very much against uh, pharmaceutical drugs to treat uh, so-called mental illness. And I'll say so-called because you're quite right. Their their psychiatric Bible, if you like, uh, classifies new human emotions all the time to put it in there as some mental disease. I mean, we were quite amused to see that... uh, people like us uh, anyone who sort of challenges authority they now classify that as some sort of mental illness which is treatable so i guess that would uh, class all of us you know just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. challenge authority so it's is a completely ridiculous situation but quite scary when you look into it because based on their bible they can start to uh, take people into care shall we say and administer all sorts of uh, toxic drugs because you're classed as mentally ill and uh They do it all the time, um, and particularly to children, classing their high spirits as some sort of uh, mental illness. And and then, you know, I've seen cases of children under five being given being given psychotropic drugs. You know, uh, we detail that
4: in the book. You know, the huge numbers, especially in America of uh, really young babies, um, on thousands of them, on, on these psychiatric drugs. And it's, it's hor- I mean, that was horrifying, absolutely horrifying.
0: Yeah, you know, you know that it's kind of like, uh, and they're doing this in China and suggesting doing it in the United States and other countries. I call it minority report disease because what they're doing is they're saying algorithms can help determine. And we're not talking about tests for antibodies or markers. They're saying algorithms can help determine if someone might be sick, and therefore that person can be detained and isolated if they may be sick. And so you, you may be sick if you have the wherewithal to question the things that you guys are questioning, that Jack is questioning, that many of you listening are questioning. It also reminds me of the... Um, the disease or mental illness that they call, have you guys ever heard of orthorexia nervosa?
3: No, I've
0: not oh, the, come
3: across the, that that I can remember now.
0: This, this one would really fascinate you if you did a little investigation. It basically means people that want to eat healthy, clean foods. They now classify that as a mental disorder in some countries. <laughs>
4: oh my goodness. No,
3: no. Uh... Oh, amazing. Amazing. Well, I mean, that just confirms what I said earlier. They, they, they want to classify every type of human emotion and reaction as something abnormal uh, and that should be treated with uh, <laughs> with pharmaceutical products. And, um, and that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, it is. Uh, although we laugh because it's so farcical, uh, it's also quite scary that they're doing this. Um, so again, one of the reasons we wrote the book was to make this information available to as many people as possible to set them free. From this because it's quite scary if we let them the authorities just continue to do this I mean we'll have no freedom at all and they've demonstrated to us over these last few weeks just how quickly they can take our freedoms away and uh, You know my worry is that if people don't start to wake up They'll it'll be too late and they won't be able to uh, be free anymore
0: And and incentivize it by paying people to snitch on their neighbors and things like that Uh, Let's pause for just a brief moment and don david if you could tell the listeners where they can get a copy of the book real quick
3: sure. okay well um it's uh any through any amazon outlet um i know sometimes people have difficulties with amazon but unfortunately it was only one of the ways we could get it out there so on any amazon outlet anywhere in the world uh, you can get the book and also you can get um uh a Kindle version of it as well if uh, that's more convenient for people it's certainly a bit cheaper as well um, We have a website which is uh, what really makes you uh, We don't sell the book through the website, but people can get onto that website and find out information About the book and uh, also about us We're starting to put because it's quite a new website, but we're starting to put articles up there So that people can read a lot more uh, without buying the book, but we don't, in, we don't intend to put the whole book up there, of course. But, um, but they can read articles which will explain a few things to them. And uh, we have an email address on there which people can contact us, but we ask them not to contact us about specific illnesses of theirs because we're not allowed, because of the stranglehold the medical establishment has. Um, we're not allowed to give any medical advice to people uh, directly, So uh, it has to be more general things where they've read the book and they just need some extra explanations about what we've written. So, yes, Amazon, anywhere in the world, uh, they can get the book. We have uh, been approached uh, very recently in the last few days by a publishing company in France who would like to publish and translate our book into French and uh, publish it in France. I mean, we do sell into France, but uh, obviously uh, it's a non-English speaking country. So... Um, we may, we may well do that, and uh, so and we've been approached by quite a few people in different countries. But uh, this is the first publisher that's offered to actually translate it themselves for us, which is uh, quite nice, really. So we're looking forward to getting it published in France, at least as well in French.
0: It's what it's Ryan. what re- what really makes you ill. Why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong. Written by Don Lester and David Parker. I just wanted to pause to let you know, as a listener, you are tuning in to The Fringe FM, this is The Secret Teachings, and I am your host Ryan Gable, and I heard Jack in the background. Jack, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I think it's important too that uh, folks understand that that Dawn and David are not doctors, and to me this is a huge advantage and benefit. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, Dawn or David, Um, but uh, I, I think that's really important because you have no biases
3: Correct. And that's exactly it. I mean, we both have sort of uh, sort of technical backgrounds. I'm an electrical engineer and Dawn was an accountant, so I would say, but she has no time for that anymore, as has become a full time job. Uh, and I'm having less and less time to do any electrical engineering work. But um, uh, yes, but because of our jobs and because of what we needed to do, we have very logical minds and uh, we're used to sort of searching out the information for stuff Um and we found as you quite rightly said we we had no sacred cows as it were we had no hang-ups we could ask any question we liked and uh, not take anything for granted you know we can ask what people might have thought was a stupid question you know what really makes you ill where most people have said well that's obvious we we know what makes you ill it's uh, bacteria and viruses and stuff like that but we didn't accept that and um and we found that very useful and um as i say talking to doctors uh, you know they've got those hang-ups because they don't question those things they've been taught not to question those things um, but we did uh, because we had no fear of questioning these things
4: and as you said at the beginning um, the uh, the medical establishment is actually uh, a lot of um, the information is, is dogma um, and that of course is not science because um, science in its true sense uh, is an ongoing investigation it's it's um ongoing inquiries and so research which means that new information should be able to um, uh, change any ideas that you know as, well certainly if new information conflicts with um some of the theories uh, or hypotheses you know new data should um, change the the uh, ongoing hypothesis um but unfortunately that hasn't happened uh, no matter how much evidence is or lacking for the idea that any germ causes any disease, the medical establishment will not change their uh, so-called germ theory. Um, they won't let it go in any way, shape, or form. And of course, that's one of the clear signs that it's not science at all. It's not a real science.
3: Yeah, Some and people absolutely. have got to see just how much censorship has increased um, on the internet through likes of YouTube and Facebook, you know, and I mean, we've been very careful not to mention certain words so far on uh, on this show. And we, we have to do that sometimes on other interviews we've done because the hosts know that uh, if they wanted to stay on YouTube, if they mention these certain words, um, they'll have their show taken down, which uh, doesn't do anyone any good. So you should realise, people should realise that when you've got that sort of censorship, then the authorities have got something to hide. You know, it's not as if we're terrorists planning a raid somewhere. We're just trying to search for the truth and help people to stay healthy. Uh, And that shouldn't be fearful to the authorities, but it obviously is uh, because of these deep vested interests.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back really quick to the German court and measles, simply because... The reality of something like a virus not existing in the form that we typically think and the absolute definitive provable evidence that vaccines are harmful in some capacity means that we have to break things down in a less than or you could say more than black and white polarizing manner in the sense that when someone says a vaccine is harmful or a vaccine is proven to be safe. A vaccine includes the whole product, which includes various elements that are in the vaccine, like adjuvants. But if you go to the CDC's website in the United States, for example, even with the censorship, I was there last night just to confirm something for my food philosophy book update. And I go into the website and I go to their What's in Vaccines fact page. And I go and I scroll down and I find that one of the examples they give as a type of ingredient used for preservative is still, although they claim it's removed from many vaccines, thimerosal, which is a derivative of mercury. Now, they say that it's safe, right? It's, it, it's only in, in existence in multiple doses, multiple vials of flu vaccines. But see, this is where it gets interesting. If you continue to read what they're telling you, they say, well, although we don't really use it that often, There's a difference between ethylmercury and methylmercury. One is considered safe to us, the CDC says, the other one is considered a little bit less safe. But if you read beyond that and you define what ethylmercury and methylmercury are, the only reason they consider one to be safer than the other is because ethylmercury, for example, dissipates a little bit quicker, completely relative, a little bit quicker than methylmercury. But the base point to understand, as you guys reinforce in the book many times, is whether it's mercury, formaldehyde, aluminum, arsenic, lead, etc., 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 poisons are poisons, whether they're direct doses that cause immediate reactions or it's an accumulative effect. It doesn't matter if it's ethyl mercury, methyl mercury, or some other kind of toxin. Toxins are what make us sick.
3: Am I correct? Correct. Okay. You absolutely spot on there. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Um, Yeah, they they tend to try and get away with, I think, uh, the Paracelsus uh, theory that uh, the poison is in the dose, which is nonsense. You know, as you quite rightly say, a poison is a poison. You know, um, yes, if you have a large dose of a poison, it'll have a lot quicker and more drastic effect. But a small dose is still a poison and it just has a less noticeable effect, but a cumulative effect over a long period of time. But it's still a poison. So it's uh, again a fallacious argument by the medical establishment that uh, that it's okay to put toxic material into a vaccine. So I mean that's what one important point. But the other, of course, is that it's again never been proven that uh, vaccines, any vaccine, confers immunity. That's never been proven, and uh, we can go into that a little more if you wish.
0: Yeah. What What exactly?
3: That was
2: my. That was going to be my uh, one of my questions for you, is. I've seen uh, the work of Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I saw your interview with Dr. Kaufman. I encourage people to follow the work of Dr. Andrew Kaufman. But is it fair to assess that vaccines have never been proven to prevent or cure diseases?
3: Correct. Yes, in a nutshell, correct. They've never been proved to confer immunity or to certainly not to cure any diseases. Um, but they do, and, they do they, this, they do they do transmit material into
0: the body that then makes people sick correct yes Yes.
4: i mean one of the um things that are that a lot of people believe uh is the dangerous element of vaccines um is the actual so-called pathogen um so there are various different arguments about whether there should be uh live viruses or um attenuated viruses in the vaccines and so you know there are all sorts of arguments about this Um, particular point Um, but that's obfuscation because they (laughs) the virus whatever the particle is is not the issue except of course it is uh, a piece of protein that is that the that shouldn't be injected into the uh, bloodstream anyway i think we we've got a quote that says quite clearly that uh, protein shouldn't be injected into the bloodstream so or certainly foreign protein so um uh, but any material uh, that, that's toxic shouldn't be injected into the body into the blood that well not into the bloodstream but it will go it will go into the bloodstream because they're injected into muscles usually so they' yeah. they'll, they'll find their way into the bloodstream but the issue is not whether the virus is uh, alive or you know it's a live virus or attenuated virus you know no, that, that's because
3: there's that's no side such, issue. no such thing as a live virus as we've already yeah. said but of course once they start, to, the, the whole idea of, of injecting something into someone's body uh, violates the first defence of the body, which is the skin. I mean, the body's uh, more than capable of protecting itself against all sorts of uh, assaults from uh, toxins and uh, various things. Yes, it can be overwhelmed. And, of course, that's exactly what they're doing, whereas the skin <clears throat> may, would protect the body from various things. But if you take a hypodermic and bypass that barrier and go straight into a muscle or straight into the bloodstream, you've violated the first protective coating, if you like, of the body. Uh, and this is what the medical establishment does. They violate uh, natural n- uh, natural health. Um, but just to expand on that a little bit about um, the dangers of vaccines is one thing. Uh, so the argument about whether a vaccine is safe, this one's safe, or that one uh, is not safe, is again a distraction because the questions that people need to ask is where is the proof that any vaccine confers immunity? And, and that has never been proven ever. And, uh, but, it, and it also relies on the fact that, and this may sound surprising to some people, that it relies on the fact that the body has a thing called an immune system, which our studies showed us that's not the way the body works. The body has what we prefer to call a health system, which, uh, providing you maintain the various things of uh, correct nutrition and uh, avoid the things of toxins and things that we, we can talk about later the we've narrowed it down to four particular factors which um, all illness all illness stems from um, but the body doesn't have an immunity system an immune system that you can boost up in some way by either vaccinations or uh, other, materials you know it doesn't work that way Um, it just has you have to just have a healthy system and this is achieved by the most important one of the most important things is correct nutrition and we go into that in quite a lot of depth of to because it's getting uh, increasingly difficult for people to get the right nutrition of uh, vitamins and minerals and we're not advocates of um, taking in artificial artificially produced uh, vitamin and minerals. We, we rely specifically on the way they're packaged by nature in fruit and vegetables. Um, and we also, we, we do advocate um, a plant-based diet and for it to be <clears throat> organic wherever possible. Uh, now this is not for, for any marketing ploys, it's the best way um, that the body can get its nutrients the organic method is because, it, because of the way farming is done nowadays most of the soils have been killed and uh, the plants are growing in sort of chemicals really um, so the, the plants whatever they are uh, the minerals that they would normally have are not in the soils so the plants can't take them up into their fruits whatever they may be so when you eat those plants they can't transfer those vitamins and minerals to you. So people can think they're eating well, but can be deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. And one of them, which seems to be most common, is uh, magnesium.
0: Yeah, that's that, so, that's one of the key factors. I really want to emphasize that. I talk about this on the show all the time and in my book, Food Philosophy, I have a part-time job also at an, at an organic grocery store where this is one of the things I, I also focus on there too. It's proper nutrition. If you are sick, a lot of the times it's because you're lacking something. It's not because your immune system is faltering, like you said, or you know it needs a boost. It's because, like with scurvy, you're lacking vitamin C or something to that effect. You need that particular nutrient. And so when you look at things like uh, you know illness overall, you find a lot of people that are sick a lot of people that are obese, a lot of people that are diabetic, not as a result of some foreign invader, but as a result of lifestyle choices and as a result of malnourishment. And another thing that, I'm sorry, what was that?
3: No, say I'm sure, you know, we we often say people can be seemingly well-fed, but undernourished.
0: Undernourished, exactly. Yeah. Another thing that's always kind of bothered me is that I'm not I'm not a vegan, but I also don't eat meat. I just don't classify myself. Yet, when I tell people I don't eat meat, they often ask me, how do you get your protein? How do you get your B12? You know, even if you're taking a supplement, that might not be as, as good as, you know, eating a piece of meat. And it's, it's, it's kind of a complex thing you have to sort of explain. I tell people, well, I'm not a vegan. I don't classify myself as anything. I get protein. I mean, a, a cup of oats has roughly half the amount of protein in it, as, as does a piece of chicken. And if I eat, let's say, oats or lentils or I'm eating veg- you know, leafy green vegetables, I'm also going to get things like a little bit of the, the soil left on those plants if I'm not completely sterilizing them of that. And it's in that soil that I get the B12. That's how humans have always gotten B12 if they're not eating meat directly. And so when you tell people that, I usually don't get any kind of you know pushback. I'm just having conversations and they're like, "Whoa, I, I didn't know that. And I say, well, I didn't know that either. I had to learn that. But it shows you how how manipulative and how how really simple it is to to navigate through a supermarket, to navigate through life, to navigate through the process of, of acquiring the proper nutrition is that all these things that we we're told about protein and about vitamins and about supplements and about what is natural and what is organic, so much of it is just psychological warfare at its very, very core. What do you think of that?
4: Yeah, I, I totally agree. The... Um uh, but, but also the idea that y- you need a certain amount of each individual vitamin or mineral or whatever is is also uh, extremely misleading
0: like a daily value
4: makes, sorry
0: like a daily value
4: yes or anything like that that you know um, or even the idea that you know you've got to take b12 if you don't eat meat um the point is that B vitamins are all, almost always in a complex which means this will include, um b12 um and packaged as mother nature does uh, in exactly the right balance um but each individual uh, looking at each individual vitamin misses all the other cofactors that the body needs to be able to absorb um the nutrients in the right way in the right balance and to be able to utilize them in the you know the biochemical reactions that the body need was well, making trillions of times you know all the all the time uh so there are lots and lots of uh, interactions it needs you know complete range of vitamins and minerals and to think that it's got to be a certain amount of of each individual one each day is is missing the point but it also i i believe it's probably intentional to stop people from oh yeah Realising that, you know, natural food, um, normal, well, what we call normal food, fruits and vegetables, plants, foods um, that haven't been processed, you know, they have got plenty of, of the entire range of everything that uh, people need. Uh, I mean, again, going back to protein, I mean, that's one of the things people say. Yeah. Well, where do you get your protein? Well, mushrooms are protein. I mean, there's just well, where, loads and loads of uh, wait, foods wait, that have wait, protein.
3: Weight for weight. Mushrooms have more protein than a steak so yeah i mean i personally am vegetarian and have been for over 45 years and uh, you know I live a very healthy life i don't get sick don't have colds and flu and or any of those things so i think if uh, i was uh, deficient in something i'd have found out a long time before now um so you know you've just got to be aware of what you eat and what the sources are of what you eat and, um, again, we, we make this clear in the book. So you don't have to buy anything special. It doesn't cost a lot of money yes. to eat healthily. Um, you've just got to source the produce in the right place and have a, a good mix. Uh,
4: and a good eat, variety. Yeah, you know, we eat, yeah. uh, you know, as, as much of a variety as possible, a whole mixture of different fruits and vegetables and plants. And, um, yeah, you know.
3: we we do explain in the book the mechanism why this is necessary. Um, And and it's all to do with uh, free radicals. Um, All of the causes of disease, um, really the mechanism for the injuries caused to the the body is um, surpluses of free radicals. Now, the production of free radicals within the body is a natural process. It happens every day. Um, But providing those uh, free radicals are absorbed and dispelled from the body with what are called antioxidants, which you get from your fruit and vegetables. You're Also the body produces powerful antioxidants of its own like melatonin, which it produces while you're asleep in the hours of darkness, which is quite important. Um, and all is okay and you can live a healthy life. But it's when you get an excess because of lack of nutrients and a lack of sleep, um, and you get an excess of these uh, um, destructive particles, that um, they attack the cells and you start to get cell damage. And if it goes on for over a long period of time, you can end up with organ failures, organ damage, and uh, and cancers. And that's really where it comes from. So nutrition is very, very important. And the correct nutrition is extremely important so that you take in, in the antioxidants to get rid of the free radicals. And, and that's just sort of a, a simple thumbnail sketch of it.
0: Yeah, and, and you and both are so right that it doesn't cost more money to eat healthy or to be healthy. In fact, in my experience, what I've talked about in my book Food Philosophy or on the show over the last decade is that it actually can save you money, not just in the short term but in the long term as well in terms of diseases that might develop as a result of a poor diet, as a result of a poor or poorly responsibly decided lifestyle. I want to go to Don very quickly before break here and I want to ask you about the thing you just said about vitamins. Are you saying basically that individual vitamins, as we or David, you can answer this too, as as we see it in in the um, terms of health, we look at individual vitamins as something that we need in a certain dosage, like a daily value. So what you're saying is it's kind of like the same the same erroneous notion of certain particles causing certain diseases, that we need to isolate this vitamin, you need to get this much vitamin, and if you don't, you're going to be sick. But that's not necessarily true in the sense, and in relationship to how this particular virus or bacteria will make you, bacterium will make you sick, when that's not the case. It's an accumulative effect of toxins, and in terms of vitamins, the opposite of a toxin, it's something that you need an accumulative effect of, but not necessarily something individually. I don't know if that makes sense, but I kind of see the two as sort of contrarily related
3: yes i mean <clears throat> the uh, as dawn said earlier uh, just eating the correct food um will give you all the nutrients that you need and all the antioxidants that you need and in actual fact you can cause um disharmony in the body if you start um taking some of these supplements because they're not in a balanced form they're not in a uh, very rarely are they in a easily assimilated form for the body to take in and you can throw the body out of homeostasis. Um, So it's not only not a good idea to take separate supplements only under very special circumstances, which um, but they are extreme circumstances. Um, So it's not a good idea to do it and um, it's much better to eat the natural way um, as we've already said, with plenty of fruit and veg organically grown as much as possible, and you don't need to do any more than that.
4: An example um, that you know we use uh, is the case with um, calcium. I mean, a lot of people um, think they need more calcium if you know to strengthen their bones, and uh, you know if they have uh, women have osteoporosis, I uh, think you know they're often given calcium or. or Uh, suggested that they increase their intake of calcium Um, but that will actually not be absorbed into their bones unless they have the right amount of magnesium in their diet and in fact uh, very few people have uh, calcium deficient diets but almost everyone has magnesium deficient diets especially people who eat uh, a lot of processed foods or it's not even entirely processed foods but um, unless you have a large proportion of fresh while well, fresh um, organically grown fresh fruits and vegetables, chances are you aren't going to get um, the right level of magnesium oh, and nuts are nuts and seeds are also a good source of magnesium. So uh, it's not always a, a deficiency of calcium. It's actually a, oh, sorry. A deficiency of calcium is actually a deficiency of magnesium because magnesium helps um, the body or helps the calcium be absorbed into the bones. And that's what I meant before with having the right cofactors for uh, the body to be able to actually um, utilize the vitamins and minerals. So, again, looking at them individually is is. Unhelpful it's um, but it, it there's probably a reason for that and because obviously they can sell all these different supplements yeah. Oh well if you, um,
3: it's a big but, business selling supplements um, but it, very few people business.
4: very few people have any tests to uh, show that they have a genuine deficiency. Um, so again this is this is just a big business.
0: So are, are some I mean, some supplements not necessarily harmful but they're just pointless? Or can there be some benefit
3: yeah and uh, some people take uh, huge doses of vitamin C Um, and for the most cases when they do that uh, because the body doesn't need as much as they think it does so it's just uh, excreting it um, (laughs) because it doesn't need it and so again you're wasting your money you know if you're eating a balanced diet of fruit and vegetables then you'll get all the vitamin C you need. You don't need huge amounts. I mean, it is strange that the human being is one of the few life forms, animals, if you like, that doesn't make its own vitamin C. Just about every other animal makes its own vitamin C, but humans don't. So we do need to take it in in our diet, but not in the quantities that might be suggested by certain uh, food manufacturers. Um, so so-
2: Sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. A good rule of thumb would is simply to leave the body alone, get the proper rest, get the proper exercise. Nutrition is extremely important, and just don't tamper with your body. I, I have a friend that gets vitamin C injections, thinking that's going to help.
3: Yeah, hey, totally unnecessary. Unless they were at death's door uh, and sort of over toxified or something, then um, no, it's just totally unnecessary.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Secret Teachings. This is The Fringe FM. We're talking about what really makes you ill tonight, the book and the topic, with the authors of the book, Don Lester and David Parker. I'm also joined by my good friend and co-host, Jack. Again, I'm Ryan Gable. Our website is www.thesecretteachings.info. You can go there to subscribe to our massive and growing show archive. It's only $35 for a one-year subscription and a copy for free with that subscription of one of my books, including the updated version of Food Philosophy, which is available and includes quite a bit of what we're discussing tonight right here on the broadcast. You can also email us at rdgable at yahoo.com. That's r-d-g-a-b-l-e at yahoo.com. And find us on social media at facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. And when you do subscribe, get that copy of one of the books. It's also free shipping in the United States, though we do ship overseas. Stay with us more after this break. If you're looking for something to do while you're quarantined or locked down at home, check out www.thesecretteachings.info for our entire show archive. There you'll find every single broadcast after it airs, and you can download and stream every single one of those shows with great guests and timeless subjects. Right now it's only $35 for a one-year subscription to the archive and a free copy of one of my books with free shipping in the United States. It supports The Secret Teachings, The Fringe FM, and it supports you. You can also check out my three books independently, Occult Arcana, Food Philosophy, and The Technological Elixir. Read reviews and see the books at www.thesecretteachings.info. Whether you subscribe, purchase a book, or you simply listen to the show five nights a week, it's a great way to stay informed and to be entertained. Again, that's www.thesecretteachings.info thesecretteachings.info or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thesecretteachings and shoot us an email at rdgable at yahoo.com You are listening
1: to The Secret Teachings with your host, Ryan Gable. To contact Ryan, email rdgable at yahoo.com If you're interested in all things that include the occult, or if that's not enough and you want a practical look at food, lifestyles and ingredients, even those in your pet food with free solutions to better health, then check out Food Philosophy. All three of these books are available in soft cover or PDF at www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures and even order yours today. It not only supports the secret teachings and Fringe FM, but most importantly, it supports you. Hi, Jeremy Scott here from Into the Paranormal, and I'm back live Saturdays at six p.m. Pacific, nine p.m. Eastern, right here on the Fringe FM.
0: This is David Ike from DavidIke.com, author of The Phantom Self and The Perception Deception. And you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable.
1: I'm Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero Radio, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable.
0: In Gable, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings right here on the Fringe FM five nights a week, Monday through Friday, at the same time every night. Visit our website at www.thesecretteachings.info to access our archive, my books, and more. Tonight, we are talking about what really makes you ill, why everything you thought you knew about disease is wrong. It's not just the name of the show, it's also the name of a book written by Don Lester and David Parker who are on the broadcast with us this evening, accompanied by our friend and co-host, Jack, from the Messenger of Information website, messengerof.info. Earlier in the show, we were talking a little bit about the usage of words. And one of the things that stood out to me in the book, written by Don and David, was the word virus. And so I did a little additional investigation beyond what they put in the book about what a virus is. And as they stated earlier, a virus, in context with its original meaning, was defined as some form of noxious substance or slimy liquid poison. Those are the words that it used to be defined as, noxious substance or slimy liquid poison. So viruses are poisons. It can also be defined as an infective agent. That's the definition we probably know more about today and that you can find in any dictionary. However, when I looked up the dictionary definition in a regular old dictionary, I found that the Middle English definition of a virus did not denote any kind of general poison. It specifically referred to the venom of a snake bite, one that we could obviously assume is as a noxious substance. The dictionary I looked at also talked about how a virus was, yes, a poisonous substance, not a particular particle and that it was a substance, quote, produced in the body as a result of disease, as a result of something that came externally and entered the body to cause disease. In other words, it's what insi- it's what's inside that counts. It's not what's outside that counts in terms of viruses and bacteria and things like that. This is the basis, or rather the opposite of this is the basis of all modern medicine in terms of what has been referred to by many as the germ theory. We've even talked to uh, Dr. Nancy Appleton many years ago about the germ theory. She wrote a book called The Curse of Louis Pasteur. And in that book, she described a lot of the things. This was the first time I had ever read them. A lot of the things that are greatly expanded on in the book What Really Makes You Ill. So I'd like to start out this segment, Don, David, and Jack, by maybe talking a little bit about what the germ theory is and why it's what's inside the body that counts and why it's the symptoms that we experience or are really symptom complexes of erroneously classified individual and particular diseases, but what it really is is your body reacting to pollution. Is that correct, and can we go into the details about that?
3: Sure, yes. Um, yeah, the, just a, a, perhaps a, a little brief history of the germ theory. Um, it had been around a long time. In, in I know that uh, most people associated with Louis Pasteur, who uh, incidentally was a chemist. Uh, he wasn't a true scientist and certainly not a doctor. Um, so he was a chemist and um, most people, as I say, associated the germ theory with him. Uh, but it had been around uh, some time before him and he sort of, um, as people are starting to realise he was uh, um, not all he was made out to be and uh, somewhat of a plagiarist and was uh, using the work of other people uh, not, uh, not least of which was uh, a guy c- called Anton Béchamp who was a true scientist but anyway, Pasteur um, sort of developed on that um, he did lots of experiments uh, based on so-called bacteria causing disease and uh, came up with all sorts of lotions and potions which broad brush uh, didn't do any good and in some cases actually caused great harm and uh, actually killed a few people too but um the germ theory was based on the fact that um before they invented the electron microscope so we're going back about 150 years um when they, there was just optical microscopes and uh, the medical people of the time were trying to determine what sort of things could be uh, causing illness in people, and once they could look at the into the blood with uh, an optical microscope, they saw these uh, what we know as bacteria um, <clears throat> surrounding cells, um, dead and dying cells, and they wrongly assumed this was their big mistake. They wrongly assumed that uh, because there were bacteria surrounding these dead and dying cells, that the bacteria were the cause of the dead and dying cells and uh, we use the analogy quite often that uh, that would be the same as blaming firemen for house fires just because you always see them surrounding a house fire but anyway this was their basic mistake again they they didn't have any proof that this is what was happening and they failed to realize that the bacteria were actually their job in the body is to clean up such things their job is to clean up dead and dying tissue and without bacteria um, humans and any other creatures would not be alive we we have millions trillions of bacteria within our body i think someone estimated there's about a pound and a half of them just in our gut alone uh, without which we wouldn't be able to digest food so they're absolutely essential uh, in the body and they're not the enemy of the body at all but as i say that was their first mistake and then um and, and is, is that referred to as saprotrophic
4: yes Yes. 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 They're they're natural decomposers. um, And you can, uh, well, they're actually recognized as being able to um, break down uh, toxic material because they are used in sewage treatment plants for that very. Function and yet um, it's denied that they have that function within the body. You know, that they're it, the assumption, um, and again, like you said at the beginning, um, dogma and assumption. I mean, the assumption was that by finding whatever these particles, um, the assumption was that uh, they were the cause, but it started from a much earlier assumption that something from the outside invaded the body and that's what caused um, disease in the first place. But yes, that's, yeah, that, that's what bacteria do. They're de- natural decomposers, yeah. absolutely essential.
3: We, we see it everywhere, you know, you can, uh, yeah, you can see it out in the wilds, you know, in the forests, you know, where fungi, which again are natural things in the body, um, are, are decomposing dead and dying material. That, that's their job, they're the cleanup agents. So again, big mistake by the, uh medical establishment of that time but then in around about 1930 the invention of the electron microscope came along so they could see even smaller particles in the body Um, and they saw these as we've discussed earlier these uh, little bits of protein um, which they then have misnamed viruses and uh, so started attributing them to uh, causing these other diseases that they couldn't uh, blame bacteria for. But again, quite erroneous. As we said earlier, the science is not there. They have never proved that any of these particles have caused anything. And uh, if you think about it logically, as Dawn quite rightly said, even under their own terms, these particles uh, are not alive. They're not living things. So it seems to beggar belief, really, that you can blame so much on something that's not alive. But they do. Um, but even worse than that, they've never even done any of the tests that would be required to prove that that particle caused any disease. So the whole germ theory, which, as I say, incorporates uh, bacteria and viruses, is is a complete far- fallacy. It is a theory, as they still admit, and it's one they've never proved. But they've built a whole medical system based on those um uh, quite erroneous uh, assumption.
0: And, and, and those assumptions are the foundation for the dogma by which we appeal to the authorities, they themselves assuming, and then we assume likewise that the authorities must have done some form of legitimate scientific research where they found some evidence of something, but if their basis, their belief is based on dogma, and our belief in authority is based on the idea that they have evidence, then it creates this incredibly simple yet somewhat complex belief system that collectively we identify as disease and modern medicine today.
3: Yeah. I mean, they they even have uh, things set up. I mean, you may have come across a thing called Cox postulates. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which the medical is one of supposedly one of the gold standards of the medical establishment, which in basically says that uh, wherever someone is ill, um, you should always find the disease-causing agent in that person. And for healthy people, um, you know, it shouldn't be there. But this is contradicted time and time again in their own things. I mean, uh, diphtheria and uh, various other diseases, you know, um, the people being diagnosed with it, and they haven't got the germ that's supposed to cause it, and the converse of that is true. So even their own gold standards, they can't adhere to. Uh, so they really do make it up as they go along, yeah. and try and find some other reason to explain it away. So it it all becomes a complete nonsense.
2: Um, can we can we talk a little bit about the agenda um, that you discuss in chapter nine of the book? Because in my mind, this all comes back to the early 1900s and how John D. Rockefeller hijacked health and created this pharmaceutical-based medical system. Um, You referenced the Flexner Report, which came out in 1910. Will you please tell the listeners about the effect that this has had and has had for over 100 years and how this is still in play today?
4: uh well uh the um the flexner report uh was i think um uh funded by the rockefellers and as everyone knows, the, uh, one of the main uh, products of of that family was the uh, petrol petroleum industry, and unsurprisingly, most, uh, in fact, not if not all, uh, pharmaceuticals are made from petrochemicals. So you can see that's a, a very lucrative uh, business model to be able to inform um, all medical people, or, or to teach the medical um, teach the medical students that. Uh, all the diseases that they're going to come across can be effectively treated by using the products of the pharmaceutical industry, which are based on petrochemicals. So um, right at the beginning, the, the, the idea uh, was that the Flexent report was uh, to look at all the different medical schools and to see which ones should be um, allowed to continue and which ones won't uh, be funded into the future and all of the ones that were funded were the ones that supported the what's called the allopathic system which is the the current kind of modern medicine and the other schools which would have been um, homeopathic and uh, you know have uh, with various other I can't remember the other schools um, but there were a number of different types that were looking at uh, somewhat more holistic Types of treatments and, and non-pharmaceutical treatments. Um, they didn't get the funding. They didn't get the support. Like homeopathy. So they had to fade. Uh, yes, they had to fade away.
0: You know, the Rockefeller family also directed the Medical uh, Association of America, or the AMA, the American Medical Association, to introduce the licensing system that would legally place restrictions on who could practice and who could not practice medicine. So, as Jack referenced, this has been. Centrally controlled for at least a hundred years or so, but going back further than this, you know we, we know that historically things like mercury were used as, as a cure as a treatment for a lot of different things, and then the symptoms, the side effects, the direct effects of mercury exposure to the skin or the body. Then produced what others would call, you know, classifiable diseases. So chemicals—it's not just something that the Rockefeller Foundation established. I think what yeah. they did was they, they they profited from it by controlling the petroleum production. But this has been something that so-called doctors and scientists have used for healthcare for hundreds and hundreds of years.
4: Yes, I mean, um, you talk about mercury. I, I believe mercury was used for treating syphilis for um, for hundreds of years, about four or five hundred years. Um, it, um, I think, previously they'd been using arsenic-based uh, products and lead-based products, and so yes, um, the art of poisoning a body back to health has, uh, or the idea of poisoning a body back to health, has been part of. Um, these uh, ideas and dogma and assumptions so it's not surprising that um, they formed the kind of core ideas that were then carried forward into uh, what then became modern medicine um, with the idea that they could produce products because of course any natural substances or you know suggestions of changing a diet to something that's more healthy obviously doesn't have a, a profit attached to it and you know people can't make money but yes i mean certainly uh, a number of diseases were um treated let's say um using mercury i mean it was not just syphilis it was leprosy as well with the idea that they could um poison um poison the body and and but the but the model that it's based on is the idea that there's a disease entity that attacks the body, that then the body or the, something has to then attack the disease entity. So it's, it's a whole warfare model um, that's completely erroneous and does not represent um, the true nature of the body and health and what health is really about. But one of the points is that they don't want people to think that they have any... Uh, ability to control or be responsible for their own health. So, of course, the body is then made out to be some kind of machine-like uh, thing, uh, almost non-living. You know, as you've, you've got various machines like a machine with different parts, and so each part can be fixed independently of of all the other parts. Um, and you know, you you've as as an entity, the body has no ability to to look after itself, but that's complete contrast or completely 100, 180 degrees contrast with how the body really is which is we've discovered it's a, a self-regulating organism that has more than enough ability to look after itself to be healthy but it does have to be given the the uh, all the ingredients and all the support it needs to um to to create that health and also to avoid as many of the um Uh, factors that will impede that health uh, as possible and that's as David was alluding to before getting increasingly difficult with all the toxins that are around um, but also with uh, other influences including electromagnetic influences
0: yeah and and, 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 you you know something really really simple that you guys wrote in the book about antacids always comes to mind because I've, I've talked to other people about that before as well it's a really simple example you eat too much food you get acid buildup because you're Stomach's trying to produce enough acid to digest the food. If you take antacids, it suppresses the acid. But if you keep eating too much food, your body has to produce acid to be able to help digest the food. So it creates this vicious cycle. Your body's mm-hmm. producing the acid because it needs it to prevent you know, an overloading or to be able to facilitate, at least, the digestion of that food. So it really comes right back to personal responsibility. If you want to get rid of acid reflux, for most people don't eat as much or stop eating foods that make you feel that way.
3: Correct. Yeah. And, uh, of course, as Dawn has said, the whole industry and it is an industry relies on this, uh, the factor of uh, making people feel that they're helpless and that they have to, um, give their power away, if you like, to the medical establishment because, uh, the body, is as she said, uh, a machine that uh, malfunctions, and uh, but the medical establishment can put it right. But as we know, the lotions and potions that they give to people have what they call side effects, but what we call effects. <laughs> yeah, side effects. yeah, exactly. That's it's, what they do. It's a direct and, effect. Um, of course, then they end up having some other illness uh, or malfunction of their body, which then they go back to the doctor, who gives them something else to. Uh, probably cure the so-called side effects that were caused by the first drug. And, you know, we can recite lots of people who, you know, when you talk to them and see what they've got, and they can have a, half a dozen different drugs that they're taking every day, uh, and they're still not healthy. Yeah, and even and if those... continues to deteriorate.
0: Even if one of those drugs isolated individually was in some far-out galaxy somewhere far, far away, was proven by some standard to be safe, relatively speaking... There's no study on combining all 12 of those drugs together and then putting them into the body. I mean, the consequences of that are just unfathomable.
3: Yeah, and uh, of course, that's all compounded. I mean, that's a very important point you made there. None of them are tested for their synergistic action. Um, So, you know, you're just setting yourself up for all sorts of problems. And then added to that, of course, people can go and buy over-the-counter medications and start to self-medicate. Again, they can buy several ones, again, which are never tested uh, in concert, so no one knows what they do when you mix you know this cough medicine with that particular pill and with whatever other medication you're taking, plus any vaccinations you've had. So you get a whole cocktail of chemicals into the body, and it's wholly surprising that uh, things are going to go awry.
0: Yeah, it's like a house of cards. I, I always tell people in terms of side effects, it's like getting hit by a car. You break your leg, but they consider the broken leg to be a side effect of getting hit by the car. No, your broken leg is a direct effect of getting hit by a car. Correct, yes, yes. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you guys about, because Jack and I have been discussing this for a couple of weeks now, a couple of months now, actually. Uh, You're listening to The Secret Teachings, if you're just joining us right here on The Fringe FM, the website, www.thesecretteachings.info. But what I want to talk to you about is, is, um, we discussed a little bit about viruses, but there's a little bit of uh, confusion, let's call it, kind of circulating, obviously on the internet, but I know in the, in the radio community of what I do, pertaining to uh, this idea about viruses not existing. And it's kind of like, I always say it's a game of telephone, because when you say a virus doesn't exist, people then immediately, if they were to believe that based on some form of evidence or just based on what you say— they immediately move to the opposite end of the spectrum. So if a virus doesn't exist, well, then there must not be any kind of influence that makes me sick. So there's this game of telephone. I don't know if you guys have experienced this um, lack of context or understanding, I know I have, where people believe that viruses, bacterium, you know, microorganisms of any kind don't exist, even whether they're considered good or bad, they just don't exist. And I think a lot of that may have been influenced. There might be psychological warfare applications, intelligence communities, and businesses that are involved in spreading this disinformation to cause confusion. But I think a lot of it is just a result of, and I mean this word as it is defined, it's a result of ignorance, and it's like playing a game of telephone. When you actually go look at the information, like in the book that you guys wrote, What Really Makes You Sick, or you listen to shows like The Secret Teachings, you can just go define these words, you start to understand with context, what a statement like that really means. And that's something that's kind of bothered me recently because I have people that are like, dude, viruses exist. And other people say, no, viruses don't exist. Nothing, you know, you're just sick for some other reason. Microorganisms don't exist. It's like, no, reality, in my view, is found within a balanced objective perspective by weighing all sides of a particular situation. I just wanted to express that And maybe if you have any comments on that, I don't know if you've heard stuff like that, but I think that is a result of misinterpreting the work that you guys and others have done.
3: Yes, yes. Um, there's a few things to come out of that, Um, because nowhere do we ever say that uh, certainly bacteria do exist. They are living things. Um, Viruses, what we say is not that they don't exist. It's just that these things that they call viruses are not pathogens, i.e. they do not they're not harmful to the body. They're natural uh, particles in the body. Um, so we're not saying they don't exist. We're just saying that they don't cause any harm. Then They're not uh, pathogenic agencies. But one of the questions that sort of uh, is connected to that, which people often bring up, and that's about infection and contagion. They go. They will say, well, if these things are not pathogens, you know, if they don't cause disease, how come... Uh, you know in the office we can someone gets a cold and then you know within a few days or a week everyone's got the cold uh, what you know if there's nothing that's contagious or infectious how does that happen I mean this is a favorite question fair fair question um, and what we try to say to people well first of all remind them that there is no evidence that uh, viruses or bacteria cause disease so it has to be something else and then that has to be looked at as to what those factors are. Now, if someone is uh, a group of people in an office uh, start to show cold symptoms, which is a very common reaction when people are detoxing. So they've obviously come into contact with uh, something toxic. Now, it might be uh, it might be the water stand where they get the drinks from each day. It could be the air conditioning unit. It could be the food they eat at home, the stuff they drink at home. It could be whatever they're uh, medicines are that they're taking, uh, their uh, vaccinations that they may have had, it can be all sorts of things. Or it could be electromagnetic frequencies within the office, as we know many offices with lots of computers, um, have got uh, quite powerful electromagnetic frequencies. And we can talk about this a bit later perhaps. Um, there's a great deal of evidence that's been collected over the decades um, to show just how harmful electromagnetic frequencies are and are responsible for a lot of ill health and some of it quite serious even things like multiple sclerosis. It's been shown that uh, electromagnetic frequencies damage the myelin sheath which covers the nerves and causes such things as these uh, neurological illnesses. Again, it's toxicity of another kind. So whenever a group of people become ill, you need to look at the individual factors which we always do. Um, I mean, I've been in offices where that sort of thing has happened and several people will come down with it or people will say, oh, such and such has got a cold, I guess I'm gonna get it next. Um, and they may well do, but you'd, you know, I've been in those same offices and I never do. Um, so there's something going on in their life, their lifestyle that's um, causing them problems Uh, they're not able to detoxify properly um, and they have taken in some toxins so it's a case of telling people not to be deceived by appearances you know I often uh, put it a bit like the stage illusionist uh, saw in the lady in half or appears to Um, it's and it, it you, you can be deceived by appearances and people jump to the conclusion that, oh, well, we've obviously passed some sort of germ around and that's why everyone or the majority of the office has become sick. But when you look into it, it's not the majority of the office. A few people have got the cold. And if you looked into their lifestyle or what they've come into contact with, you it would be able to be explained. Um,
0: <clears throat> so that's so, why that's why maybe during the wintertime people are going to get a little sicker. It's not that they're catching a bug, per se. It's that they might lack sunlight. So they're lacking the production of certain vitamins like D in the body that sunlight helps to produce. Is that an accurate assessment?
3: Yes, that can be so. And uh, in the summertime you can get similar things, you know. There's lots of, uh, well, some illnesses that come around, which the medical establishment calls seasonal. You know, one of them is the Novavirus, I think it is, where it induces sickness and diarrhea, which comes around at a certain time. But what you have to look at is what is happening. Now, if we think about it, summertime, springtime, you've got the agricultural farming industry start spraying fields, and you can get a lot of wind drift. So even though they may be a mile or so down the road spraying their field with God knows what, um, it can be drifting your way depending on the wind direction, and you're inhaling it, and uh, this can be causing it, and this is often what why it's a seasonal thing. It's when someone is doing something particular. I mean, it used to be years ago um, when polio was uh, quite rife. Um, again, that was eventually traced to the fact because that seemed as the records show, seemed to be a seasonal thing and the medical establishment couldn't understand why it appeared at certain times of the year to be in more proliferation. And and we do explain this in the book Um, until they realised in those days they uh, used a lot of DDT. Uh, which is highly toxic and has been banned in most countries now. But it was used a lot, you know, (laughs) Um, and it's extremely toxic. And one of its effects is uh, paralysis, which, of course, is one of the effects of uh, polio. So when you look into it, whatever these things are, there's a logical and rational reason for it, which is nothing to do with germs. Uh, Invariably, it's um, chemical toxicity or yes. emfs or a combination of both in in almost all instances
0: yeah there are a couple and, and of it, things that 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 i want to isolate here and jack i want to get to you too but before we do that because you brought up polio when you look at something like polio or smallpox we say that it's been mostly eradicated around the world especially smallpox from the smallpox vaccination programs and we say that that is a great achievement of science but what is more a uh, I would say an achievement is better sanitary conditions, which you guys talk a lot about in the book, something I've discussed on this show for many years. It's sanitary conditions like waste management, washing your hands, things like that, that prevent people from getting sick with what we call smallpox, polio, From cetera, from you know, chemicals, toxins in the environment. But then people say, and, and this is what you guys address in the book, and, and if you can maybe just quickly address it, we'll go to Jack's question, that well, we've eradicated a lot of sanitary uh, you know issues in parts of the, quote, developed world, why exactly do we still have disease then? Now, I think that the reason we still have disease is really important to analyze what kind of disease. We're not suffering from smallpox and polio in the United States, for example, or the U.K., we're suffering from other kinds of diseases. We have diseases of what they consider to be affluence, which is kind of a misnomer you guys point out in the book. But with better sanitary conditions, we still have disease. It's a different type of disease. Could you guys talk about that just for a moment?
4: Oh, no, I was gonna say the, uh, yeah, different sorts of diseases, I mean, um, just briefly, smallpox uh, and lots of other diseases of, of that kind that are called childhood diseases are are skin eruptions, and the skin is one of the uh, body's major organs, and that's one of the ways that the body gets rid of uh, toxic materials. So any kind of uh, skin eruptions, rashes, pustules, all that kind of thing, that they're just uh, an indication of the body. Um, clearing out toxins Uh, and obviously during the period when smallpox was rife um, as you say sanitary conditions weren't exactly brilliant and so uh, there was a build-up of of toxins and um, that they came out through the skin and um, there are instances where uh, even vaccinations um, because that was one of the first uh, diseases for vaccinations and in fact vaccinations worsened those problems, those um, toxicity in the in the body, and so mm-hmm. there would be even more, greater eruptions. Polio, of course, is something different. It's now regarded as a mild illness, but the the main thing about polio is the paralysis. and um, the the obvious thing um, that we discovered were uh, for causing paralysis were um, substances that were neurotoxic um the reason that the the types of diseases um i know they're called infectious but the the types of symptoms associated with so called infectious diseases are um have changed is and now um people in so called industrialized uh, countries now have what are called chronic uh, diseases or non communicable diseases is because um the the types of uh toxins they're exposed to are, are rather different um and so the body's reacting in in different ways because uh, as we detail in well <laughs> as we explain in, in great detail in chapter six there there's just a huge um, array of um poisons in the world, in the environment that we can be exposed to, whether they're external um, in the external environment, so from um, pesticide spraying or fertilisers or whatever, or the internal environment, which is through uh, all the chemicals that are used in the food industry, they... Um, produce a different kind of um toxicity in the in the body that um the, the well just uh, it's it's a different way of the body getting um clear of of the syst- of the toxins in the system so it's not and the other thing is again we explained that that even though there are lots of different labels of diseases there are There are no separate disease entities. People only experience different combinations of symptoms. Is that what you call the symptom complex? Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, just different symptom complexes. So um, each kind of group or each set of symptoms are given a name, but that actually doesn't mean anything. Um, But it's understanding the processes that the body goes through to uh, expel toxins and... Uh, attempt to repair damage and restore health. So um, things like heart disease are are not quite um, the the problem that we're told. Uh, they are quite often the result of uh, imbalance in in diet. Um, so uh, maybe excess sodium, but also deficiency of potassium because the cells need both in order to to balance. So it is again, back to more of an imbalance within the body caused by a whole array of um, exposures to different toxic, well, harmful substances and influences, and they work synergistically. And, and of course, the electromagnetic radiation that we're experiencing now just didn't exist a couple of hundred years ago.
3: Probably come on to uh, EMFs and uh, the sort of dire effects that they're having. Uh, I would just like to point out, because we bought uh, smallpox was brought up and uh, it's a great claim by the medical establishment that uh, when they introduced uh, vaccinations against smallpox that uh, they they're claiming that uh, it was them that uh, eradicated smallpox largely but uh, when you study the records and anyone can do this you'll see that uh, smallpox has, had almost disappeared before vaccinations even came into existence. So their claim is completely unfounded. So they kind pig, of
0: piggybacked on that information, if you will, that data. It's starting yeah. to dissipate. So we introduced the vaccine and look, the vaccine stopped it.
3: Totally untrue. Um, Jack, Jack had a question
0: for you guys. Jack, you want to jump in? Just getting back
2: to the contagion scenario, I've heard you uh, mention this before, and I think it's pertinent that when people get sick uh, in the office or kids get sick at school, the symptoms typically are not exactly the same in each sick person. So that plays into the the concept as well. Other than that, I was just uh, hoping that before we run out of time, we can get to... The real nature and causes of disease so after you address the contagion scenario um, could you talk a little bit about the four factors and then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to talk about the current pandemic before we wrap things up
3: okay sure um yes the, the four factors that we list in the book as being the root cause of all illness no matter what names the medical establishment give to them is uh Toxicity, an overload of toxicity on the body, uh, lack of correct nutrition, uh, excessive and prolonged stress, and uh, electromagnetic frequencies. Now, all of those four factors uh, on the body will cause uh, excesses of um, free radicals. And it's the free radicals that then, if they're not addressed, uh, cause damage to the body in various ways and uh, anything from as i mentioned earlier uh, damaging the myelin sheaths of the nerves uh, which causes neurological diseases to anything else you can think of but we boiled it down to those four factors and we examined those four factors and their relevance in every disease that we could come across both in humans and animals because we looked at it for animals as well and in every case we found those four factors would be at play. And the, and the vast majority of cases was uh, chemical toxicity when people become ill, particularly in what the medical establishment called the non-infectious diseases. And that's their way of saying, well, we can't blame this particular disease on either a bacteria or a virus. So it's, uh, we'll class it as non-infectious and mostly they give it another name and call it autoimmune disease, which uh, they then try to blame the body for attacking itself which is, again, a complete nonsense. We we looked into that, and there is no scientific evidence for the body attacking itself. Um, All of those diseases fall into the categories that I've just said, and all of those particular diseases are non-infectious. The main causes are chemical toxicity and exposure to electromagnetic frequencies.
0: Can people have genetic or other classified sensitivities to things, though?
4: Um, Well, the idea that genes are involved um, has been refuted by um, people like uh, Bruce Lipton, who says, um, I I believe his words are, genes don't control biology. So um, it doesn't matter what uh, genetic influences are claimed to be involved. um, It's much more important to uh, take account of uh, what he called the environment because his In his experiments, he discovered that cells, even if they were um, ill, could be uh, brought back to um, health if if they were given the right nutrients, the right materials, that they could recover. So um, the environment, whether it's internal or external, is is a far more important um, factor than uh, genetics. Uh, And also the the human genome uh, project, Showed that um, some of the assumptions that had uh, been made before the project got in got underway um, were shown to be false. They they believed that um, <clears throat> each gene uh, would code for uh, an individual protein, and they discovered that there were far more proteins and far fewer genes, and therefore that that whole hypothesis fell apart. Um, so genetic influences are or genes do not influence but genes can be turned on or off by uh, the environmental influences which can include nutrients as well as toxins
0: right so it's basically the body's genetic system if you will responding to those outside influences in the same way that physiologically biologically we have a headache we have a fever we have a rash because our body is responding to some kind of outside influence not a particular living organism but some kind of toxic, toxic subta- substance or our bodies responding to you know, lack of nutrition, like let's say in the case of scurvy where you can get lesions on your skin, lack of vitamin C and things like that. Is that a fair assessment?
3: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: I, wa- I want to I ask you guys another question here. I don't know if um, I haven't heard you guys address this, and I, I, I've uh, talked to Jack a lot about this. You think about something like um, a biosafety laboratory. You think about the development of biological chemical weapons. That might kind of imply what it is a chemical weapon. But a lot of people say that, you know, biological weapons, thus as a result, and this is probably like a game of telephone again, don't exist because, you know, viruses don't exist, people say. But as you clarified, it's, it's that they're not pathogenic in nature. So what exactly are they doing then in biosafety laboratories that are one, two, three, and level four, where they're supposedly studying highly contagious and pathogenic viruses, things like smallpox, things like uh, Ebola. What are they doing there? What, what are they looking at? Are they looking at, you know, specific forms of bacteria and viruses that are just, you know, DNA and protein? How are they engineering that into a bioweapon? Can you explain that, elaborate on that a little bit?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, well, a few things out of that. It's quite a complex <laughs> question, really. But um, uh, first of all, we're back to the the basis of uh, for something to be a biological weapon, you can only use uh, biological things. And as we've already explained, um, these things called viruses are are not a biological entity. They're not alive. So you can't develop something that's not alive into a biological weapon. You can make chemical weapons and uh, we know they do. But it's a bit of a a non-starter to call it a, a biological weapon. You can, with your chemicals, you can affect biology. You can poison people, you can kill people, whether it's through gases or toxic materials of one sort or another. Um, now, these people in these laboratories, um, and this is why I come back to a statement made by Dr. Stefan Lanker, who was a virologist, but has given up that title because he realised it was a bankrupt uh, form of uh, research. Um but there are still people who get huge grants and make a lot of money out of fiddling about with these things in their petri dishes, in laboratories. Um, but for the most part, there uh, we I refer people to a Dr. Harold Hillman, who was uh, studied cell biology for over forty years. that was his expertise. And what uh, he could see was happening, again, could in a long story short, was that in their laboratories, because of the way they prepare their specimens, Uh, You know, sliced and diced and stained and dyed and treated with all sorts of chemicals before they look at it under their electron microscopes, Um, they produce what he's called artifacts. And this is that they've actually produced something in their petri dish that doesn't exist in nature. They've actually created an artifact an artificial something and for the most part this is what they're looking at and trying thinking they've found something new and that they're developing it into whatever it is they're thinking they're developing it into but it's um you know biological weapons as such are are a misnomer and for the most part the people who are conducting these programs are probably either more likely working on chemical weapons and if they think that they're working with producing some a uh, viral weapon, then they're deceiving themselves with, as Dr Hillman said, with looking at artefacts, things that they've created in their laboratory. They're not real and um, uh, they only exist under their, micros- under their electron microscopes, which we must emphasise are not the nice big 3D colour pictures that the mainstream media show you floating around on the screen. None of those are real. They're just CGI um, because uh, under an electron microscope, uh, whatever you're looking at has to be dead and um it, it's only in black and white and uh, it's not moving it can't move around so uh, they're nothing like what the uh, mainstream media would deceive people into believing they're looking out when they see these uh, lovely colored um, balls with spikes sticking out of them floating around on the screen it's a it's a, a real deception and uh quite disgusting that they should do such things and uh, make people think that they're seeing viruses.
0: Well, it's very similar again to what astronomers do and what NASA does with their computer-generated images of planets a million, million light years away, tens hundreds of millions of miles away. Well, that's what the planet actually looks like. Well, that's an artist's rendering of what they think the planet looks like based on context. But what really makes you ill? Don Lester, David Parker. First of all, I'd like to thank you both for coming on the show. And I'd like to thank you, secondarily, for sending me the book. I really, really appreciate it, and uh, one of my favorite books already. Uh, half. <laughs> oh,
4: thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, really great stuff. I mean, I can't. I couldn't put this thing down. I've got it highlighted and marked up. And uh, I wanted to say that there were a lot of things that in this book that I had heard before, I've read before, uh, Dr. Nancy Appleton and others that I've talked to, I've interviewed, but things that didn't necessarily click. And then I read your book, and it was clarified in a way that was very simple so I really want to uh, I want to express my my gratitude and also uh, how impressed I am about how you guys were able to put so much of this together but how it's also very easy to understand and and I want to say that because I've read a couple of other books about disease, pathogens, viruses, and all that stuff, like, me- me- like mainstream medical, virology, immunology, things like that. And they're, re- they're really written in a way that's complex, and it's kind of insinuating that you know, you're not one of us, but we'll talk to you, even though you don't have letters next to your name. But when you read this book, or others like it, you guys made it really simple for anybody to be able to read this and realize, oh, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I
3: appreciate that. Well, thank you for saying that because we worked really hard at achieving just that to make it. We wanted the book to be able to be read by anyone and to understand exactly what's going off. And uh, that's why it took us a long time to put together. But uh, yeah, we've had some good feedback and, and I thank you for that because that means that we've achieved the job we wanted to do to give a full and expansive view of what really makes you ill in an understandable way without you having to sort of uh, have lots of letters after your name.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now let me uh, me pause real quick. I'm going to go to Jack. Jack, we've got like less than six minutes. So if you have a quick question and we can get a quick answer out of Don and David, that's great. And then I want to give them the floor for a moment, because as a guest on other shows for myself, I know how it is at the end of the show. You got one last thing you want to say, and you want to express that to the audience. So Jack, you go ahead first.
2: I want to echo your comments uh, regarding the book. Excellent. And uh, those were exactly some of the same comments that I was going to make regarding the book. And I can actually tell you, Don and uh, David, that uh, as I read it, I almost feel like a med student. But um, I guess my last question would just be uh, pertaining to the current so-called pandemic. I, I think that the four of us could probably all agree that Basically, this is a massive uh, psychological operation. Do you have any comments? Since since viruses do uh, do not cause illness, uh, and people like David Ike are saying that there is no uh, COVID-19 virus that actually exists, do you have any comments on on the current situation?
3: Sure, yeah, um, Yeah. Th- that, that is perfectly true, as I say, because they've not done the tests on certainly this new supposed virus, uh, that the papers are not there to show that they've proved that it exists at all, along with any other virus. So we know that there can be no pathogenic virus at the base of this, which begs the question, then what's it all about? And yes, I believe it's a manufactured um, scenario, Uh, with a a deep political agenda behind it to grab control of the world, which they've done, and to grab control of people, which they've done, and to see just how far they can go with it. And uh, they must, uh, the people who've done this, uh, it it is psychological warfare, um, must be very pleased with themselves because uh, they've found it to be very easy, really, uh, when you can see how quickly they did it and how many people have fallen in line, which is a little scary. Um, So I think it is, and we've been told this by the people, it's very fortuitous that our book has come along uh, at this time, which um, if people take the time to read it, will see that they're worrying and are being made fearful of something that doesn't exist. It's a ghost and uh, which will free them from this fear. And they'll realize just how much they've been lied to by the whole of the establishment, whether it's the medical um, or the governmental or the media. They've been lied to uh, in the most horrendous way. And uh, once people realize this, not only will it free them from fear, but they'll hopefully never again trust the authorities, and they'll always second-guess and question whatever it is that they're trying to impose upon them. So we're hoping, in a word, that it will give people true freedom.
0: Yeah, philosophically speaking, I know a lot of people are scared of things as the current situation. However... If you explain to people what you guys have explained tonight, what Jack's explained, what you guys discussed in the book, what really makes you ill, it is freeing. But for some people I know it's also still scary because it's like, well, what's the solution? The solution is nutrition, take care of yourself, de-stress, etc. I think that also scares a lot of people. So then you have to go further and you have to explain that those things are quite simple to do and they don't cost a lot of additional money. So you have to... Always look at things, as I say, objectively and don't respond to the emotional reactions of this is terrifying. Oh, it's an easy solution. But wait a minute. I still have to take responsibility. That's really scary. That's hard. It's like, no, no, no. it's really easy. And I had to learn that. I'm still learning. I'm sure you guys are still learning. Jack's learning. All of you listening. We're all learning together. We're not speaking down to anybody. We're all on the same level. And it doesn't matter if you have or don't have letters next to your name, because in the book, you guys quote, I don't know how many people that have lots of letters next to their name. So that's a really important point I wanted to emphasize. But in the last minute or so, do you guys have anything else that you'd like to add? Anything important or just kind of frivolous that you would like to say to the audience?
3: Well, uh, not really. I mean, obviously, we've uh, talked for a couple of hours now and uh, really only scratched the surface of, uh, as you've already pointed out, a nearly 800-page book. There's lots in it. I would advise people to read it like a novel, see how the evidence builds and see how the solutions are put together and why we've come to the conclusions that we have. Um, I do truly believe, Dawn and I do truly believe, it will take away fears. We've had this feedback from people. uh, It's taken away their fears of this non-existent pathogen, which we've been told exists. Um, So I, I would urge people, if for no other reason, educate yourselves, find out what's going off. Do not take on board what the authorities are telling you. They're not telling you the truth. Don, do you have anything to add?
4: Um one of the main things um possibly that people might find difficult is Uh, Like you said, that they've got to now start taking responsibility for their own health, um, because a lot of people uh, are used to the idea that, um, well, they can just carry on doing whatever it is they want to do, however they eat um, and whatever else they want to to do uh, that they can then all if they're ill, they can just go to the doctor and get a pill and that'll fix them. Um, Unfortunately, that isn't the case. Um, But the uh, the solution does mean that they've got to take responsibility. They've got to take some actions. And that's not necessarily easy. But at the same time, it's not a question of, oh, you've got to do everything or nothing. It's just to learn what the influences, uh, substances and influences that are affecting your health or adversely affecting your health and start to reduce them, eliminate them and start moving towards um, healthier, a healthier way of life or a healthier environment and and just take it a step at a time. It, it's not a question of, oh, well, you've suddenly got to change overnight. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's it can be difficult for people to say, oh, oh, it's my own fault. No, it's we're not saying it's your own fault. The only problem is that people are given the wrong information.
3: Yeah, and just as a, as a passing thought, as we say, um, natural health is very simple. But the rules are quite strict. There are not many of them, but the rules are quite strict and, and very simple. And if you follow those, you'll live a long and healthy life without redress to any outside agencies, uh, particularly the medical establishment. I don't know whether, whether we have just a moment for me to just read the quote on the back of our book, which I think sort of sums it up. And this was by Voltaire um who says doctors are men who prescribe medicines of which they know little to cure diseases of which they know less in human beings of who they know nothing i think that sort of sums it up
0: yeah it it does sum it up thank you guys so much for coming on the show what really makes you ill don lester david parker if i bring up the music here real quick can i ask you guys where, where did you hear about the show because don messaged me like back in january and said that uh she was going to send me the book if I wanted a copy of it. Did you guys come across the show or did you see something somewhere online? I'm just curious.
4: Uh, I th- I think it was listening to interviews that you'd conducted with different people. I, I, can't remember the first one um, but I you know and certainly when I looked at the website and the the ideas that you were expressing were certainly very close to um, ours and and I just hope you'd be interested in the book and and you are and thank you
0: <laughs> yep absolutely thank you guys again Jack thanks for joining us this evening buddy thank, thank you
2: thank you uh, so much for what you do Don and, and
3: David thank you thank you for having us
0: all right, what well, really makes you ill? I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings, www.thesecretteachings.info, rdgable at yahoo.com and facebook.com forward slash Teachings. Right now, it's $35 for a one-year subscription to The Archive with unlimited access to every show and a free book with free shipping in the United States. It supports The Secret Teachings, The Fringe FM, and you. Stay tuned to the network. We'll talk to you on the next broadcast. Stay safe and stay informed.